I want to congratulate you because we have arrived. We have officially arrived. And your question, if I can hear you, is what is your question? Where? Where have we arrived? Uh, we've arrived at, well, first of who read the Torah portion this week? Anyone? Who studied the Torah portion this week? Where, what we've done is we have arrived at a Torah portion that's called Tazria Metzora. Tazria means, and she shall conceive. Metzora means leper, or we'll talk about that, but it's a new section of the Torah dealing with, you ready? Impurity. Tuma, Tahara. We've arrived at this exciting section. Last week we finished up with reading about unclean animals. And so since the animals were created first, we start with their uncleanness. And now God's moved the Torah into Leviticus 12, into talking about ritual impurity. And, you know, truly, truly, some of the hardest material in the Torah to digest. First off, it seems completely and totally irrelevant. There are no sacrifices. There is, we, we, there is no temple. We're talking about leprosy, biblical leprosy. Tzara'at is the Hebrew word. It's not to be con, con, you know, confused with Hansen's disease, leprosy, but it's not even around anymore. So it's irrelevant seemingly. It's very weird. Why in the world does the Bible have, what, what does God care about patches of white skin with white or dark hairs growing in them? It's gross. And should some of this stuff even be in the Bible? We're talking about emissions and like mold and women's menstruation. It's kind of weird. And in the end, really, it's downright kind of mean and insensitive because this Torah portion starts with a woman who has a child is impure and eventually she has to bring a sin offering. Are you serious? This great, beautiful event of having a, a child, now she's considered, what, sinful and brings a sin offering and she has to kill something to celebrate life? You know, it's just... It's kind of weird. It's, it, it seems mean. So where have we arrived? Where am I welcoming you? Welcoming you? I'm welcoming you to one of the most difficult places to stay connected to the Bible. I'm welcoming you to the place where the tendency is to completely just like, this doesn't matter. This doesn't mean anything. Like, he, here's what I expect. Most believers don't touch this material with a 10-foot pole no pun intended, it's about impurity, but you get it? Other than maybe that one time when someone gave them the Daily Walk Bible and they made a New Year's Eve resolution that they were going to read through the whole Bible, they read through this once and like, oh, I'm never coming back to that. That's weird. So what do we do about the tendency to disconnect and shut down? Well, I had a realization and a revelation this week because I... As I studied this week to prepare for some teaching, the only thing in my mind is I'm not going to talk about COVID-19. We've, we've had enough. Let's take a break from that. And we've found all of these different applications. So I said, well, let's, that's the one thing I don't want to do. And then you're thinking, well, the, he's, the Bible is now talking about being impure and quarantines and all this. It's like the perfect week. Yeah, I get it. But I didn't want to do it. We needed a break. 
And I had some really good thoughts on that. But so I dug deep and I, I dug into t- old modern commentators, ancient commentators, studies, books, pulled out, fired up the prayer engine on high gear. And, and you know, I hit a deep well of incredible incredible insight but here was my thought and it's it's a strange one and very off topic it's a it's a proof of sorts about the the uniqueness of god's word and it's and it's it's living nature you know the bible is one of the most criticized books maybe the most criticized body of of writing on earth there are there are, have been and always will be critics who search through the Bible for inconsistencies and grammatical errors and historical problems. And they are, they're, they're the first to bring them out. Well, that verb tense doesn't mean this. This is improperly translated. He says this here. He says this here. That census didn't happen that year and all kinds of things. But at the end of the day, the criticisms are relatively like there's only so many. The flip side of that is that there is an infinite fountain of of wealth that pours out of the Torah for us. Riches that can be mined from this book, an endless, endless stream of inspiration and wonder and life application and points of discussion and introspective lessons and so much more. And commentators have discussed the Bible for thousands, thousands of years. And we still continue to pull out deep and meaningful and new insights at any given day. You can read a book that tells you something you never knew before about the Bible or gives you an interpretation. Now you can watch videos of YouTube and Zoom rabbis and and teachers and all kinds of things. It is an endless stream of things. And I'm recalling... Uh, ben Bogbog from Pirkei Avot, who has a famous quote in, in the Mishnah, and it, it really took hold. Turn it over again, turn it over for all is therein and look into it and become gray and old therein. Do not move away from it for you have no better portion than it. He's talking about the word of God. And man, this week, through this inexhaustible flow of interpretations and ideas from, from the people of the, of, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yes, and I know other religions can claim that their sacred texts are the same thing, and that's fine. I'll give them that, even though I don't agree with it. But our word, our God, our Bible is alive and gives us, gives us so much to, sh- to, to chew on. And so I want to share just one with you today that I hope will help you see that what we're studying from the word of God here is incredible, even if it seems hard to connect to. Tazria, Exodus, I'm sorry, Leviticus 12.1. I don't like to read to you, but let me just give you the context. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, if a woman conceives, Tazria, and bears a male child, she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. See, I told you, or this is 
Interesting. Uh, then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, she'll be unclean two weeks as in her menstruation. She shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for, remember this, a burnt offering, and a pigeon or turtle, turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Make atonement for her. Then shall she be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. Okay. You got that? So we're off to kind of a bad start. She had a baby. She's impure and needs a sin offering. In his commentary, Adin Steinsaltz on the Bible, which I haven't read it, but I've heard it's amazing. He has this to say about this whole concept. Despite the rationalizations that have been suggested for these halachot, for these laws, we just read a series of laws, despite the rationalizations that have been suggested for them, the statutes of ritual purity and impurity are essentially without reason. And that hygienic explanations that have been put forward have no basis. In other words, Hukim. These are the statutes of the Torah for which we have no real reason given in the Torah. Speaking of Isaiah 55, his thoughts are higher, his ways are higher. And, and some suggest that these are given possibly as a demonstration just to say to God, listen, I get it. Your ways are higher than ours. We'll do it. Fine. We're obedient. But truthfully, you know, that's not the Jewish way. We have to talk about it. We have to argue about it. So let's do that. <clears throat> and I want to do a quick recap. You remember this all from the Hebrew series, because I'm certain from last year that you committed it all to memory. Travis Fisher might have actually, we, he told me he's listened to it like three times. Uh, but the chatat, the chatat, the sin offering, which is what our Torah portion is saying that she needs to bring one of those offerings. So what is that? Well, you're going to remember that the term sin offering is, is kind of poorly translated and that purification offering would be a better term because the, the sacrifices do not atone for intentional sins. You cannot murder your next door neighbor and bring a goat to the temple and have it be okay. They don't atone for in, in intentional sins. And as a further consideration, which I don't think I brought you in the Hebrew series, Numbers 15 confirms this for us about the sacrifices when it says, if a person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat. And it talks about these unintentional sins and the sacrifices. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally for him who is a native. But then in verse 30, 1530, it says this, but the person who does anything with a high hand, that means intentionally, whether he is a native or a sojourner, if he is, if he is rebellious toward God intentionally, if he reviles the Lord and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of God and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be upon him. And then from there, it goes on to talk about, you remember, the guy on Shabbat who rebelliously goes and picks up sticks 
and is stoned to death by the community because he's committing a rebellious sin. He wasn't, Moses didn't walk up to him and say, hey, why don't you bring a goat? We'll be good. And what follows then are the commandments for tzitzit, the fringes, wear them so that you remember my commandments. So you cannot sin intentionally and bring a sacrifice. The guy who did is killed. And then God says, listen, I'm serious about this. Wear these fringes. They'll remind you not to do that. Okay. So in other words, intentional sins are not going away with sheep or goats. And we read that in Hebrews 10. That is a recap for you so that you can understand something about the sin offering that clearly we know that this woman who brought this offering after her childbirth is not a sinner, okay, in, the, in that word, in that sense. So what is happening? Why is she impure? Why does she need to bring these offerings and specifically labeled sin offering? There is a pattern that you'll see in the Torah, in the Bible, as it relates to ritual impurity, that it, it tends to occur after encounter with something, after, after a profound or significant event that is related to life or death, okay? Life or death, we read about corpse contamination. Interacting with a corpse is the highest level of impurity. That is an encounter with death. It renders the home and everyone around impure. So too, in the second part of this week's Torah portion, what's called Metzorah, the leper, the, that type of leprosy was, was compared to death. And that person had a very, very high level of impurity, similar to the corpse. So these encounters with death or severe illness leave one impure. There's also an impurity that results from menstruation for women. And, and it's strange. It seems like that's not a big encounter that happens every month, but here's an interesting perspective on why that would render a woman unclean. The seed that passes from her body is actually in a, in a certain kind of way, it's a life that did not occur. It's not death, but that seed was not fertilized. And so an opportunity for life passed before her. And that's a powerful consideration for the woman and her husband, that he, she, and to a degree him, are potentially co-creators in life with God. And the impurity that results from that process, and she did not have any control over it, it's not a sin, but it is a time to reflect on our, our partnership with God and co-creators and, and, and a time of limitation, of separation from the world to, to kind of think about that. And so it's not death, but it's a significant event. And childbirth is similar. It has a similar connection. It's safe to say that there are very few life events that are more life-altering than a child. She is truly now a partner in creation with new responsibilities. And in ancient cultures, having children was dangerous. You could die. 
So God has brought her through this. God sustained her. Her world is radically changed. And so there's this period of separation, of reflection, of limitation in active society. And God asks, reflect upon what's happening here. Again, impurity and unclean kind of hardly do justice to the concept. And most definitely, sin does not address that. So why at the end of her purification time then, question two, why would she need to bring this sin offering? I mean, I don't, I don't see any unintentional sins. I certainly don't see any intentional sins. All I see is something beautiful. So her offerings, what are they? They are the Ola, number one, the Ola the burnt offering, the elevation offering, the free will offering, and the chatat, the sin offering. And I know anytime you start throwing terms around, it gets confusing. But listen, when the days of her purification for a son or daughter are over, she's to bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or dove for a sin offering. Okay? So stick with me on this math real quick. Either seven or 14 days after she has had her child, <clears throat> she is, she's, she's, well, let's, let's make that easier. After 40 days for a son, seven days of impurity, and then 33 days of kind of just separation, or for a daughter, 14 days and 66 days of separation. So it's a total of either 40 or 80 days, and I'll let you do the study on some various suggestions as to why it's different for boys and girls. But after this time of either either 40 or 80 days, the days of her purification are over. Okay? They're over. So on day 41 or 81... She's bringing these sacrifices. The days of purification over, she's bringing these sacrifices. Now, as Jacob Milgram points out in this great, amazing Leviticus commentary, this fact that she's bringing it after those days are over is irrefutable evidence that these sacrifices do not function as what is called apotropaic, that they have like in ancient Near Eastern cultures, you would bring offerings to ward off demons and do all kinds of weird stuff. She's already done with the purification process. It's not that weirdness. She is not defective. She is not evil. She is not full of sin. Day 41, day 80, she's been fully reconnected. Day 81, she's fully reconnected. And that's what the sacrifices do. They reconnect. They allow you into holy space. They allow you to consume the holy food of the mikdash, of the, of the sanctuary. Okay, But beyond the obvious things that they do, which is, as I said, sanctuary access. There's a beautiful, beautiful, and this is what I want to share with you. All that to get to this, so so stay tuned. A beautiful interpretation that's partially mine and partially drawn from Rabbi Shmuel Golden, who, by the way, is a rabbi that probably very few of you have ever heard of. 
he wrote this wonderful commentary on the Torah and hidden in the pages is this little bit of insight that speaks to God's sensitivity, to his, to his sensitivity, even in the book of Leviticus. Wow, yeah, in the book of Leviticus. But you have to look, or maybe since the book of Leviticus is actually called Vaikra, and he called, maybe you have to listen. So here it is, listen. The Olah. Remember the text tells us she has to bring the burnt offering and the sin offering. So the Olah is a burnt offering. It's completely consumed on the altar. And it can serve as a thank you to God. A thank you offering to God. You can see that in Numbers 15. And so I ask, for those of you who are parents, and particularly moms, and I am I am very sensitive to the fact that infertility and issues are some of the most painful on earth to deal with when a couple wants to conceive. And I'm very aware of that. And if I know about that for you and you're on this call, know that I am praying for you. So I, I'm, I'm sensitive to it. So think back mothers, fathers, those who have children. Is there any more joyous moment than the time which you welcome a new soul to the earth? One that you co-created with Hashem. And, and having just spent now in this woman's case, this month or two with the child, now able to re-enter the presence of God in the sanctuary, yes, we can absolutely see why she would bring to God a thank you offering, a burnt offering, a thank you that says, God, for my life, thank you for saving me, for bringing me through childbirth, and for the life of this child, for bringing a meaningful uh, purpose to my life. Yes, God, I'm giving you this, this thank you, this whole burnt offering as a way of saying I love you and I appreciate you and I am grateful to you. But let's look and focus at that second one, the purification offering. But for this case, I'm going to leave it translated as the sin offering. The Torah does something very unique in this, ex, in this Leviticus 12 text. It lists the burnt offering first and the sin offering second. That is not how the sacrifices were offered. The sacrifice of the sin sacrifice was offered first and then the burnt offering. And that makes sense. If you're saying, well, God, these things that I did back here, erase those. It makes sense that you'd bring, you, you deal with the past before bringing the, the um, burnt offering. And, you know, that's logical. Well, and, and in actuality, even in this situation, even though the Torah states it as the burnt offering first and then the sin offering, it was actually offered in the proper order in the temple. So the sin offering was offered and the, and the, and the burnt offering was then offered. But we know that the Torah makes no mistake that there are no words ever uttered in any particular order out of uh, error or oversight by God. So maybe, maybe there is a reason that the Torah states the burnt offering first and the sin offering second. As I said, the mom is saying, thank you. But what about this sin? 
Consider this. What if this sin offering was not for the past, but for the future? What if in this case, the sin offering represents the unintentional sins that the mom might commit toward her child? What do I mean? The love of a mother is unique. And again, I understand that that not all of us were raised in homes where our mother fit the bill. But for the most part, moms are amazing. They love us. They care for us in ways that dads never can. And Hashem has endowed moms with these special gifts. And those gifts are apparent in a mother from, from the moment that she begins to carry a child, even more the moment of birth. And the first moment of touch and eye contact with that child. But what happens? Three months, six months down the road, two years down the road, 15 years down the road. There's, a, there's an interesting, I want to read just a bit of Rabbi Golden's thing on this because it's so good. Three months later, at two o'clock in the morning, when more tired than you've ever been in your life, you're changing the diaper of a screaming infant. When three years later, you're again running in circles after a recalcitrant toddler. When 15 years later, your teenage son or daughter rolls his or her eyes at you in that frustrating way, as only a teenager can. At those moments, somehow, that child doesn't seem quite so precious. You lose sight of the clear instant when you held a new life in your hands, when nothing was more important than the life and welfare of that newborn child. The korban chatat, the sin offering, is brought for all the inevitable moments when the crystal perspective accompanying childbirth will be lost, for all the times when this precious life will not be appreciated as dearly as it was at the moment of its arrival. You see, I know that's what a mom's love looks like. I love this child, God. Thank you. And I would never purposely fail him or her. But if I do, recall this moment in our relationship when I asked you, to remember me by bringing this offering. And one more consideration. The mama grizzly bear comes to mind for me. I'm I'm what I think of when I recall my mom and my wife defending their children. You do not mess with mama Jane and mama Kelly when it comes to their kids. And while I love Rabbi Golden's thought, I, I, I add this consideration. The mom may be thinking of herself, but I suggest that she's not. She might be thinking, is thinking more of her child. That this is a mom's first genuine act of love toward her new child. That of defender, of mediator, of intercessor. And says, God, here is my child. I will do all I can for my baby even if it means my life, but I also know 
I will not be able to save them from every mistake. I want to, but I can't. Please look upon this offering with favor for my precious son, my beautiful daughter, and remember my love for them when they fail. And demonstrate, Hashem, your love and grace, mercy, and compassion to them. Wow. Does that sound familiar? That's also what Yeshua did. You see, moms and Yeshua have a lot in common. They give everything for the ones that they love. There is something so beautiful in that. I pondered those words and just had a tear running down my face as I was making these comparisons and thinking of moms. And I just think, man, it's beautiful. You see, it's, it's, a, it's a correction of this mean God consideration that God, the God of Leviticus is, is bloodthirsty and angry and wants to see things die. I can't tell you that any of those things that I just said were, were in God's mind. All I can tell you is that he gave those ideas and those thoughts to two rabbis to share with you. And so maybe, just maybe, that's a part of his thoughts that are higher than ours. And it's enough to make you reconsider the sacrificial system at least a bit. And I think that's the beauty of God, that every good and perfect gift comes down from our Father in heaven. And who could have known that a confusing and potentially unrelatable and even weird, unfair text in Leviticus could help us see the work of Yeshua and the love of a mother so profoundly. For that, I can only say Baruch Hashem and Shabbat Shalom. We're building the kingdom and thankful that you're a part of that mission. If this teaching inspired you, please consider a financial gift to support the work of Shalom Macon. Visit MaconMessianic.com and click Give Online. May the Lord bless and keep you.